0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto-skeptic, half-believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week's Crypto Unstacked features John Lee Quigley, head of research at Miner Update. In this episode, we chat about a number of topics, including crypto in the context of global monetary inflation, the economics of oil and digital gold, the mining cost curve, and different Bitcoin valuation models. John's excellent, and in this episode, we get into just the tip of the iceberg about some things John has written about in the past. I certainly learned a lot and hope you enjoy this episode. John, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you on.
1: Hey, Leslie, happy to be here.
0: In the last episode, I chatted with Daniel, the co-founder of Miner Update. I'm really excited to continue my conversation today with you from the research angle. But before we get into the weeds, could you share more about your background and path to crypto?
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to join you here and give more info into the research and content we've been doing a minor update my background in bitcoin and crypto i initially heard of bitcoin around 2015 i was in dublin studying and working in finance and i was uh walking along and seeing this uh, cafe that was called the world's first smart bakery so i went inside and was speaking with the owner and he was showing me all this uh crazy stuff that, oh, he has the fridge connected to the smartphone and he has all this stuff automated. And eventually he said, and we also accept Bitcoin. And I was like, what's Bitcoin? And he gave me an explanation. And of course, I didn't understand it at all. Then I went home and I Googled it and I was very skeptical at first. I um, was thinking, oh, this is a Ponzi scheme for sure. I'm just going to forget about this and focus on the traditional markets. I kept on working in finance anyway and Bitcoin stayed in my head and at a later stage then I had to look into it again and second time I was committed to actually understanding what's going on here, I ended up uh, going down the rabbit hole as a lot of people say. Then I worked in finance for another couple of years and eventually ended up leaving my finance job and started working freelance and providing content services to cryptocurrency businesses. Then about last year I started working with Daniel and Mia from Minor Update and we clicked really well and ended up taking over the content and the research side of Minor Update and we've been working together since and it seems like our content has been resonating with a lot of people.
0: For sure, I'm definitely a loyal reader of Minor Update Insights. I'm very curious actually to hear more about the types of clients that you're working with on a freelance basis given this was probably 2017 and 2018 right when the hype of crypto was going through the stratosphere. So what was that experience like starting your freelance business during that time?
1: Experience has been amazing and I still take on freelance projects today uh, regularly and work with, with several clients um, and that's what I can attribute my deep, deep knowledge of crypto and mining and Bitcoin to is this work and these hours spent diving into technology and understanding technology. When the bull market is happening, obviously in 2018, you see a lot of shady projects set up, but really I would only work with projects that I believe in and I think they're strong and I would have an interest in working with them. But the type of clients I've, I've worked with have, have ranged widely. And sometimes they're even outside the crypto industry. It could just be doing analysis and research articles on the traditional markets, on macroeconomic developments. And in ter- inside the crypto industry, I've worked reporting on, for example, upgrades. What's the trade-off with certain development proposals? Also, looking more at, at the tech architecture of different kinds. And obviously, mining and market developments as well.
0: Yeah, it seems like you cover a wide range of topics, and I'm really glad you've brought your research expertise over to Minor Update. I know one thing you like to do is write about crypto in the context of global macro, and that's also the way we like to think about things here at Crypto Unstacked. So could you explain why it's important to frame crypto within this broader narrative and also walk us through some things you care about as a researcher and crypto market analyst?
1: Mm. So first of all, Bitcoin doesn't exist in a vacuum. Although maybe it started as a project that a small number of engineers got passionate about, its ultimate success, if it's going to be a trillion plus asset class, depends on macroeconomic developments, how institutions are going to respond to this Mm -hmm. asset. I feel like political developments don't matter as much because if a government tries to outlaw the use of cryptocurrency or bitcoin its nodes are widely distributed enough and there's enough mining power securing it in unknown locations that this will be an extremely hard technology to to outlaw but in terms of of market developments and how institutions are gauging it and what kind of fiat capital is going to be flowing into and out of the system These are extremely, extremely important variables to analyze for the success of
0: Bitcoin. For sure. And I think something that institutions also like to uh, get a better understanding of is how these current macro themes are affecting crypto. And so I'd like to pick apart two macro themes today. The first is about inflation. You wrote about this topic recently in your minor movement insight series. I think the current narrative is split on the impact of this crisis on bringing inflationary pressure to the global economy. You know, some people think that the crisis is deflationary for sovereign nations whose debt is denominated in their own currency and inflationary for sovereign nations who hold foreign dollar denominated debt. So i like to parse the inflation narrative very carefully here, as I don't think we'll see synchronous inflationary pressure across all global markets. So John, do you think aggregate inflationary shocks in certain sovereign nations will be enough to drive demand toward Bitcoin as a fiat alternative?
1: First of all, it's, it's worth pointing out that um, emerging markets and countries that have a huge amount of debt denominated in USD are in a very sticky situation. In a lot of cases, their domestic currencies have been crashing this year. We see the Brazilian real over 30% decline against the USD. We see some Asian economies greater than 10%. I believe the Russian ruble might be somewhere between 10 and 20% decline against USD. So this puts these economies in a very tight lock. They have this huge amount of debt their income is being hurt because the world is on lockdown and the debt is effectively becoming bigger because they need to generate the income in their domestic currency and convert it to USD to pay the debt. So a lot of these countries are gonna to have to turn to the money printer. And this puts economies at the risk of inflation because if they're gonna to have to keep printing ever increasing amount of money to pay back this USD, there becomes a risk that people will just put their money into goods and services, and demand for the currency will be lost. In this case, Bitcoin becomes more attractive as an alternative, and we are seeing peaked interest in Bitcoin in some of these emerging markets. Um, The local Bitcoin volume for regions such as Venezuela has, has spiked up recently. We're also seeing markets such as Colombia, Iran having greater volume on local bitcoins. But in terms of the United States, they're in a, in a unique circumstance because they have the world reserve currency. Everybody is scrambling to get dollars to pay back this huge amount of debt and there's a shortage of dollars in circulation. So this pretty much gives the Federal Reserve liberty to print huge amounts of money without risking inflation. In terms of the US economy, the, the crisis does seem more deflationary. People aren't going to be spending and the world is on lockdown. It's interesting dynamics for sure. And I can only see inflationary or deflationary. I can only see it being a plus for Bitcoin.
0: (laughs) Right. And I think a big component to the deflationary pressure in the U.S. at least is the fall in oil prices. And I think that's another very important macro theme to talk about as well and tying the narrative of oil to Bitcoin's economics. And so we've seen a lot of comparisons being drawn between Bitcoin and oil recently. You know, It seems like there's a valid argument to be had about whether the global supply of oil is heavily manipulable. As we know from Econ 101, price is directly impacted by the levers of supply and demand. And one way to think about it is if the supply of oil can be subject to this kind of manipulation, that the price of oil then is arguably unpredictable. As we've seen recently, the price of oil has tanked, uh, taken a steep nosedive. And unless supply cuts are enforced and the global macro picture, improves to induce greater demand from consumers, as you say, it's unlikely. I think the deflationary effects will subside. Now, when you look at Bitcoin, the supply of Bitcoin is fixed at 21 million and the halving that's just right around the corner will decrease the supply issuance of new Bitcoins hitting the market. And so referencing the recent mining research um, published by CoinShares, uh, you had mentioned them in one of your miner movement insights. You say, quote, if price falls 10 percent in Bitcoin, the difficulty will adjust to keep production constant, while the reward, which was previously going to miners operating just above the margin, are distributed to more efficient miners, end quote. So the difficulty adjustment component is intrinsic to the Bitcoin network and acts as a lever to keep this supply and demand at equilibrium. So theoretically, difficulty adjustments uh, keep supply consistent by incentivizing miners to continue producing. Basically, this is a long-winded pretext to my question, which is from a market dynamic perspective, what are your thoughts on the idea that difficulty adjustment is a crucial third variable that enables Bitcoin to behave differently from an oil-like commodity? Could you sort of tease out the relationship between price and difficulty?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think... (laughs) Anybody who understands differently respects that this is one of the most intelligently designed things in the Bitcoin system and it's why we can attribute a lot of success to Bitcoin today. In the case that the price of oil drops 10%, then those that were operating just above the margin won't operate below break even. They'll be forced to shut down or they'll be forced to use their cash reserves until they reach bankruptcy or in in the case of oil, when, when these people then stop producing the supply of oil reduces. In Bitcoin, the supply stays constant. If those miners that are operating just above the margin end up, uh, the price drops below their break even and they're forced offline, then the hash rate output drops. Then the time the blocks are taken to be produced ends up getting longer. And then difficulty will adjust in response to this. And it's a never ending cycle. Difficulty will always respond to people dropping off the network and coming onto the network. That's why someone who maybe shuts off at one point in time might be able to come back on when difficulty drops because their break-even price might once again be below the market price of Bitcoin. It's, it's a very intelligent incentive mechanism to keep people wanting to deploy this hardware and invest their money in this hardware so they, they can mine Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Now I want to talk about other articles that you've written. One actually touched on a phenomenon called the Matthew effect. Could you break down this concept for our listeners and explain how it relates to mining?
1: Uh, Yeah, the Matthew effect is actually um, an effect that is in play in the global economy. And it's very simple. It's just saying that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The rich have resources and they can use these resources to um, generate more wealth and the poor have restricted resources. They're operating just above their expenses or in some cases they're operating on debt. This lack of resources hinders them in, in accumulating more wealth. I heard of this Matthew effect a long time ago and I was um, doing some reading and researching on cost curves in Bitcoin mining I was thinking actually. The match effect seems to be in play with cost curves in Bitcoin mining. So the idea of of a cost curve is that the lower you set your costs at in Bitcoin mining, the exponentially greater of a market position you're in. Because if you have lower operating costs, then you're operating a higher margin than all those more inefficient miners. But not just that, you're less vulnerable to price declines. If you're operating just above the margin and price declines, then you're in the red. You've, you've dropped below your break-even level. In a lot of cases, you, you will keep running because you haven't dropped below your cash flow break-even, and the money that you you generate can go to paying back your hardware. But unless you're above break-even, you're, you're not going to ROI. But these miners who are, are the lowest on the cost curve have the greatest margins. They have the greatest cash at their disposal. And then when new upgrades of hardware comes out, they can have the choice to either upgrade or they can wait and see what happens. And they also, when other miners go bankrupt that are higher on the cost curve, sometimes they're forced to sell their rates at discounts and these more efficient miners can pick up these rates. So it's a, a very important factor where a miner sits on the cost curve.
0: Yeah, let's take a step back there actually and talk about what goes into a miner's overall cost of producing. Could you share some of those variables?
1: Sure, so electricity is a huge, huge expense. Estimates for the amount of a miner's cost that went to electricity typically range from 60 to 90%. In China, where about 60% of the hash rate is, it will be on the higher end because in China, the, the labor rates are lower and the other expenses will be lower. Outside of electricity, you have costs like labor, your plant, your facilities, your hardware, which is your mining rigs, setup costs, your facility costs. Christopher Ben Dixon from Coinshares breaks it down in a very good way. So a miner can either go all in and have everything as operating costs, so you essentially are renting your rigs, you're renting your facilities, etc., etc. But in most cases, They go a mix. They have operating costs, which is mainly electricity, and then they also have upfront costs, which is facilities, hardware, etc. That's the general way miners will go. And as long as you're operating above your operating costs, in this case, which can be called your cash flow break even, then anything above that can be contributed to paying off your other expenses, which is your hardware, etc. But if you drop below your operating costs, which is your cash flow break-even, then it just makes sense to shut down because you're you're just burning money. So there's two break-even levels. There's the all in break-even ROI, which when a miner sets up and has a business plan, their plan is to exceed this and get returns in excess of this. But there's also the cash flow break-even, which if you're above the cash flow break-even, it makes sense to keep the rigs running. Or if you drop below it makes sense to shut them down. One other factor though to take into consideration is that even when miners do drop below the cash flow break even, sometimes they need to keep keep on the rigs and keep burning money because they're locked into contractual obligations, they have to use a minimum amount of power, or they have investors that say you need to keep these rigs running this percentage of the time. So that also needs to be taken into consideration.
0: Yeah, this actually brings me to the question that I've been thinking about quite a bit, especially as we enter into something like the halving. This is how do miners position themselves with a defensible business model to protect against short term volatility in crypto assets, which is what we've been seeing actually since the mid-March market sell off and being cash flow positive. Over the long term, right? I feel like miners have to constantly keep tabs on both the short term and the long term to make sure that it makes sense for them to be operating within different timeframes. So, what are some things that miners are doing to make sure they are defensible in various market conditions?
1: So, in terms of setting up, it's all about setting up in a way that you can get the lowest on the cost curve. If difficulty goes up, miners' business is hurt. And also if price goes down, uh, miners' business is hurt. So the bigger a margin you can have between the market price and your costs, the better. Because new hardware is going to come out. People are going to deploy that hardware. That is going to increase the difficulty level. And also, as we've seen over the past couple of months, Bitcoin price is volatile. No matter how many having price increase predictions are thrown around, it's subject to declines and large, large declines. We've seen it touch 3,500 in March. So the most important things are to set up your costs as low as you possibly can on the cost curve and also to put some thought into when to deploy your capital into upgrading to new hardware, such as as the latest generation ASICs.
0: Yeah, let's actually dive deeper into the hardware question. In the article recently, you explore how hardware manufacturers may be overexposed to an unexpected drop in demand for mining rigs. And this is reminiscent of 2018. Could you first take us through what happened in 2018 and talk through the challenges that hardware manufacturers are facing now post the mid-March market sell-off?
1: One important thing to know here is that the um, hardware manufacturers of ASIC mining rigs is a very expensive business. And these businesses put in huge prepayments with the foundries, such as TSMC and Samsung. Essentially what they're doing here is they're gauging the market demand for mining rigs way ahead of time, like 12 months ahead of time. If it takes six to eight months to get your, your rig to market, then you need to take into account what the market demand is going to be like for rigs six to eight months into the future. I can't remember actually how long it takes to go from designing a rig to actually getting it to market, but I remember David from Obelisk did a, did a Medium article called The State of Cryptocurrency Mining, and he went into some different estimates on how long it takes to get your rig to market. But the main thing is that these manufacturers need to gauge the market demand and when everything's bullish everything is fine there's high demands for rigs essentially the whole world wants to deploy mining equipment but if you put in these huge prepayments and go to build, build your rig and then by the time your rig is coming to market prices declined and difficulties remain in the record levels then maybe the demand for the rigs is not going to be there, but, but you still have huge debt and you still have huge expenses. We've seen an example of this in 2018, Q2 and Q3. In Q1, everybody was still bullish from 2017. But in Q2 and Q3, the inventory and the balance sheet of hardware manufacturers went up and there was a lot of rumors and a lot of speculation that they were really feeling the pressure.
0: Yeah, it's important to draw this relationship between hardware manufacturers and chip foundries like TSMC, which I think is one of the largest ones, so Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, uh, because they play a really important role along the mining value chain, right? They're effectively the first guys on this chain. And it seems like there's only a few of these chip foundries out there, right? It's pretty centralized amongst, I think, a handful of players.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's TSMC and Samsung, TSMC, TSMC Supply, Bitmain, then there's Samsung, then there's also Intel. And I was chatting with um, Adam from SBI Mining yesterday on the Bitcoin Magazine live stream. He believes that hardware manufacturers are going to go in the same way and it might just be a few years before we see it. That it's just going to be one hardware manufacturer because the business is, is tough, extremely tough, and there's huge expenses, and it just tends to go towards more of a monopoly.
0: Right, as the stronger hands get stronger, as they say, um, and it makes more sense to operate on economies of scale that way.
1: That Machu effect coming back into play again.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Do you see any of these hardware manufacturers integrating? this chip fabrication to their business line and becoming more vertically integrated? Or do you see these two continuing to be separate lines of businesses? Mm,
1: I wouldn't be the best person to answer this question because I haven't done research into it, but on my gut instinct, I would believe that the Fabulous model where they keep keep the foundry separate and don't take the the foundry part of the business into their own business model would make more sense. Because in my limited knowledge of of that business model, I believe the foundry uh, business model is extremely extremely expensive. And the reason that manufacturers such as Bitmain and Canon and MicroBT are able to do the business that they do is because they can outsource their expenses to a foundry that specializes in it, such as, as Taiwan Semiconductor.
0: And there are also other global tech players vying for these chips as well, right? Like such as Apple uh, and Google.
1: Absolutely. There's there's a very small share that probably goes to mining. They have consumer electronics at the top of the line. Everybody needs their, their iPhone.
0: So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A M B E R G R O U P.io. John, you've also publicly shared your thoughts on something called the stock-to-flow model in the past. And to be specific, it seems you've been critical of this model. And you've mentioned that the Bitcoin energy value equivalence is a better way to determine Bitcoin's fair value. Could you explain the differences in these models and why people should be paying more attention to the alternative that you mentioned, the energy value equivalence model?
1: First of all, the, the stock-to-flow model is, is extremely interesting. It is, is extremely interesting research. And what it does is it takes stock-to-flow and models it with Bitcoin price. Stock-to-flow is the amount of Bitcoin in issuance divided by the amount of Bitcoin which is coming into circulation every year. So if you have 100,000 um, Bitcoin being issued into circulation every year, and you just have 1 million Bitcoin um, in supply, then the stock-to-flow will be 10. And the higher the stock-to-flow, the more scarce an asset is. Precious metals such as gold, silver, have very high stock-to-flows. It models the progression of stock-to-flow based on the future issuance of Bitcoin approaching 21 million, and models this with price. And the idea is the more scarce the asset gets, The higher the valuation of the asset should be, and for sure that is a factor. How scarce the asset is is certainly a factor, but also it's not novel information to the market. You can't really predict price based on this. It's already known there's going to be 21 million Bitcoin, and it's already known that Bitcoin is issued roughly every 10 minutes at this amount, and how much that is going to be going into the future, etc., etc. So. Market participants price this in, but they also price in other things. They price in, will Bitcoin survive? What's the risk? How are institutions responding? What's the federal government doing? There's a million variables that the market as a whole is pricing in. So it's an interesting model, but, but also has its limitations. And then the energy equivalence model... It is the same. It takes in another, it models Bitcoin price based on the energy, which is input into the market. And I believe this is a very strong model. Market price can fluctuate hugely from whatever value is going to be predicted based on the energy input to the market. But I believe the energy input into mining Bitcoin, it's a good indicator of how much people value this network at the moment. Because in mining, if you think about it, miners are deploying billions in capital into this specialized hardware that they can't use for any other function so they're taking this extraordinary bet on bitcoin moving into the future i believe this bet with this capital is is a lot about what gives bitcoin its value these models are quite technical so i would recommend anybody listening who's interested to, to have a look at them themselves and and form their own opinions but both make extremely interesting reads
0: On the Bitcoin energy equivalence model, could you share who pioneered this model and what types of resources people can go to to read up more on it?
1: Yeah, so it's Charles Edwards from Caprioli came up with this model. Previously, he came up with a trading view indicator to track the production costs based on data input from the Cambridge Electricity Consumption Index. You can find all his work on Medium. He just Type in Charles Edwards Medium and yeah, you'll see his his list of articles.
0: Now I want to talk about the minor update virtual meetup that took place on May 7th. The meetup was called Mind Blown Load Up or Blow Up. What's your takeaway from the event?
1: Well, there was lots of discussion about the financialization of mining, derivatives in mining. Yeah, it's an important area of discussion. We've seen Kimetrics do some some research and launch their hash rate index in this area recently it's an area of discussion like derivatives and mining and letting miners hedge their exposure which has been going on for some some while now and obviously there's a lot of complexities in in designing these products and i think we're still a way off having an exchange traded product to hedge difficulty exposure so it's it's good that we could get the chance to to organize this event and facilitate some discussion around the topic
0: for sure. And I think the topic of DeFi when it comes to mining hasn't necessarily been front of mind. And so I know the guys at Atomic Loans um, are pioneering the Bitcoin financial tools that are available for miners in the DeFi space and talking to us about how they draw from the CeFi space as well. It's, it's no surprise now that I think both DeFi and CeFi can definitely coexist in the same ecosystem. And so I I'm glad that they were able to introduce to us some of the things that they're working on and also mention a couple other projects actually that I hadn't heard of prior to their presentation.
1: Yeah. I remember even back in Chengdu, it was still everybody was just talking about financial services for mining, but we're really starting to see that take off over the past six months. And yeah, it's it's going to be a, a big industry because different miners are going to have different risk appetites and, some are going to want to hold their Bitcoin and get that long expo- exposure, but they're going to have to pay their expenses in fiat. So in that case, it might make sense for them to collateralize their Bitcoin and um, take out take out a loan to pay their expenses. And um, yeah, we're seeing many businesses come up to, to cater for this.
0: And we know that miners are inherently long Bitcoin, for the most part, otherwise they wouldn't be in this business. Uh, They're long the value of hash rate and short difficulty, as you mentioned earlier. And going into the halving, it seems like many are expecting hash rate to decrease, at least in the short term, and for difficulty to increase. So are you seeing some specific ways miners are preparing for the halving, given this context?
1: When the halving happens, the miners' cost is of Purdue mining on Bitcoin is effectively going to be doubled because miners still make over 98% of their, their revenue from, from the block subsidy. It's it's going to be something similar to what we saw in March where, where Bitcoin price dropped roughly 50%. And that effectively puts a lot of miners immediately into the red. And... Um, the way miners prepare for this is is everybody has been scrambling to, to upgrade to the most efficient and latest generation hardware. It looks like um, any miner with, with S9s, even at the, the price highs of last week, are going to be struggling moving forward after the halving. And they're essentially going to become obsolete. That's what almost every industry professional believes. And when you take into consideration that, the May batch of S19s is delivered this month, and there's going to be an August batch, and there's all, also the M30S from MicroBT. This is all going to bring the hash rate up, the difficulty up, and at the same time, miners are going to be earning half the blog subsidy, and there's no guarantees that price is going to increase. Even if some people think price is guaranteed to increase, the market will do its own thing. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see a lot of inefficient miners with old generation equipment are going to be wiped out, are going to be pushed out of the industry. And those who are lower on the cost curve with the most efficient equipment will be the ones that try it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I I think it's important to remember that price is really what drives mining activity and the ability for the more efficient miners to continue building out ultimately it determines whether these less efficient miners who haven't really taken on new equipment during this equipment up cycle it determines their survivability right and it's such a survival of the fittest ecosystem within mining that if you don't have the lowest cost of production then you're pretty much out until price then dictates whether you can come back in
1: yeah absolutely and it's it's just the way the industry is. If you're operating just above the margin, then you're already scrambling to meet your expenses and upgrading is is off, often just out of the question. So it's just the, the natural cycle of business.
0: What other trends do you see in the mining space right now? Could you give us a sneak peek about the themes you'll be writing about in the future and what we can expect from Miner Update Insights?
1: Um Yeah, sure. MicroBT versus Bitmain has been extremely interesting over the past year. They seem to be gobbling up the the market share that Bitmain have, and also the first batch of S17s they seem to have been um, reported to have high failure rates. I've heard figures between fifteen to thirty percent. Um, but we don't really know how accurate these figures are because they're all just based on one Chinese article that maybe would have had an agenda. Samson Mao tweeted initially saying 20 to 30 percent failure rate but he, he based his findings on this article. Matt D'Souza from Blockware Solutions was on the Hashrate podcast and- I think he said the first batch of his rigs had 17% failure rate, but then the next batch had less than 1%. So in that case, Bitmain is, is very competitive. But yeah, move, moving forward, seeing, seeing the battle between Bitmain and Micro to release the most powerful and most efficient rigs is it's going to be really interesting. And um, for a future piece for minor Update, I'm thinking of doing having a look at Nassim Taleb's concept of anti-fragility as it relates to minor margins and where you are on the cost curve. I know you're a you're a fan of Talib as well.
0: <laughs> I am. Apart from that
1: I'll, I'll obviously I'll definitely do a post-halving piece as well because that's a, a once in every four years event and it's going to be interesting to see how the mining industry shakes up after that.
0: For sure I think we're going to see a, a flood of post-halving analyses. And uh, who's right, who's wrong (laughs) and uh, figuring out who's still in the space after that. Yeah, definitely something to look forward to. Great. Now I want to move on to the part of our conversation where our listeners can get to know you, John Lee Quigley, a bit more. What important truth about the crypto space or mining more specifically do you believe in that few might agree with you on?
1: uh i'd say there is a fair chance that bitcoin could become the world reserve currency of the world whereas a lot of people kind of knock that off and think it's a pipe dream but if you take a long-term view really human civilization should align on a currency with the strongest monetary properties and bitcoin has extremely strong monetary properties and there's some amazing work being done by developers to make a uh, low transaction fee and fast transactions um, on higher layers of the network. Although you're making a trade-off between security and decentralization, you'll still be transacting in Bitcoin. Yeah, not not everyone would agree with that, but I, I see a fair chance of that happening.
0: And how long do you think it'll take for Bitcoin to dethrone the king dollar?
1: I well, I would just be Estimates based on that, but I would see it taking very long. I'd say decades, 50 plus years. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So now it's time for a round of rapid fire mining edition. I'm going to ask you whether you're bullish or bearish and feel free to expand and explain to our listeners.
1: Okay. Let's go.
0: Bitcoin post halving, bullish or bearish?
1: Mm, my long term view for Bitcoin is extremely bullish, but. As I've said before, in the short term, the market can can do anything it wants. And actually, as well, just to, to expand a bit on that, the market has a tendency to do the opposite of what the popular opinion thinks it's going to do. So if everybody's leveraged long in the derivatives market, the big players have a big incentive to push the price down and have all these longs being liquidated. And then when they get liquidated, they push the price down even further. So short term, it's it's going to be volatile and it's hard to say what direction. But long term, extremely bullish, and that's that's why I'm in the industry.
0: Hash rate market bullish or bearish?
1: Bullish, of course. Amazing teams doing amazing
0: work. What is the development within the mining industry that has surprised you over this past year?
1: Uh, I would say Canon listing publicly. I'm not going to give any explanation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we gotta do you, do you feel like more of these bigger mining companies will look to go public
1: uh, e has filed for for an ipo to be honest i don't really see the attractiveness public companies struggle in the mining industry the mining industry on a whole operates just above the margin and if you want to take on the expenses of a publicly listed company you're taking on huge financial reporting expenses and that's going to be that's going to be a struggle to remain competitive in an emerging industry such as Bitcoin. So, actually, I think yes, we will see a trend of more companies trying to go public, but I don't, I don't believe it's a sensible decision.
0: All right, and last question: What excites you going forward about the crypto mining industry, John? Everything, everything <laughs> in the
1: mining industry. Yeah.
0: Great. All right. How can our listeners get in touch with you? learn more about Minor Update Insight and also follow your other work?
1: Yeah, so best place to follow me initially will be on Twitter. Um, my tag is BitcoinNomadic. Make sure to check out MinorUpdate.com and we also release a newsletter with some extremely good content on MinorUpdate.substack.com. And um, for my other work, I have... Take on my other clients through the agency Adaptive Analysis, and you can check that out on adaptiveanalysis.io and also have a Substack newsletter for that, which is adaptiveanalysis.substack.com.
0: John, it was awesome chatting with you. Thanks so much for letting us glean insights from the mind of a researcher and appreciate you coming on to Crypto on Stack podcast.
1: Yeah, it was so good. I hope to chat again soon, Leslie.
0: As always, Hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and Anchor.fm slash Crypto Unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambeau. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.